Welcome to the Stories of Transformation podcast. I'm your host, Bakhtash Ahadi. Each week, I dive into deep and intimate conversations with distinguished guests who share their unique perspectives about the most interesting topics related to the human condition. In today's episode, I'm speaking with Remy Adeleke. Remy shows us what people are capable of achieving when all odds are stacked against them. His story is truly remarkable. In this conversation, Remy delves into his early life living as Nigerian royalty, then coming to America with no money where he was selling drugs as a teenager in the Bronx to survive. And then he worked harder than ever to become a Navy SEAL. He is now an actor, an entrepreneur, a writer, and a successful husband and father. Remy learned from a young age from his mother that whatever you do, you should do it right and with excellence the first time. So hard work and perseverance become second nature for him. This is how he mentors inner city youth to create a better life for themselves and is a message that can ring true for all of us. It's true, the harder we work, the luckier we become. This episode is inspirational and is a reminder of what humans are capable of if we put our minds to it. As always, if you enjoyed this conversation, please share it far and wide and kindly leave a review. So without further ado, it's my pleasure to bring you Remy Adeleke. Remy, welcome to the podcast. How are you today, sir? I'm doing great. How about you, my brother? Remy, it's really great to have you here. I'm really, really interested in speaking with you because I think your story is really inspirational. And uh, I want to go through all of it because in many ways it reads like a movie script, right? You were born in Nigeria to royal family. You lost everything. You grew up on the mean streets of the Bronx. You got in trouble with the law. And then you decided to uh, transform your life and do something really important. You joined the Navy SEALs. And so uh, I want to get into all that with you. But uh, I got to ask you, Remy, how would you describe who you are? Who is Remy Adeliki? Remy Adeleke is one, he's a hard worker. He's a person that will run through walls to get the job done. He's the person who will sacrifice everything for a goal and never quit on that goal. And then Remy is a person that's unexpected. (laughs) A year from now, the people around me will see something I'm doing and be like, I didn't expect that you would be doing that. So what I'd love to do with you, Remy, is start from the beginning. So could you talk to us about your family story? So where are you born? How did that play out? How old were you when uh, things started to change your life as a young person? Yeah, so I was born in uh, Western Africa, uh, specifically Nigeria. A lot of my story starts with my dad. My dad was uh, the firstborn son of his, his father. My grandfather had like seven, eight wives and he kept on having girls. And then finally, my father was born. So my father just naturally inherited the title of chief. So my last name, Adeleke, actually means the crown is above. So my dad was, uh, was immediately born with this prestige. Uh, long story short, his father died when he was eight. And uh, all the wives pretty much scattered. And my, my grandmother brought my father down to the south of Nigeria, down by Lagos. And they were actually Christian missionaries there. And not only did they teach the Bible, but they also taught, you know, English, literature, math, science, a lot of the Western topics that's taught in the United States and UK. And my dad was able to, you know, he's able to, you know, acquire those 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 lessons pretty fast, really, really fast. So much so that he ended up getting a full ride scholarship to study engineering and architecture in London. He excelled there, built up massive enterprises in the West. He was one of the first black men on the board of the World Trade Center in New York City. 
He was the first black man on the, on the financial planning board in, in the UK. And after some years, he decided I need to come back to Nigeria and kind of build up my country and, and kind of change the narrative of, of how people in the West view Africans as these uneducated, wild bush people. And so my dad went back to Nigeria and um, 10 years later, 10 to 12 years later, he met my mom. My mom was an American. They met in the U.S. And then she, after they got married, my mom moved to Nigeria with him as well. And then I was born. So by the time I was born, I was born into this wealth. My dad had multiple businesses, car dealerships, engineering firms, consulting businesses. I mean, this dude had his hands in everything. And he had invested millions of dollars in this project called the Lagoon Development Project, where he uh, essentially took this the swamp, this lagoon, and, and uh, he dredged it and turned it into one of the first man-made islands in the world, which exists to this day and is known as Banana Island. Uh, but unfortunately, there's so much more to the story, but I'll kind of skip through it a lot of it for the sake of time. You know, the Nigerian government stripped my father of that asset. Uh, all of his money was wrapped up in it. He died weeks later. We went from rich to poor. And uh, my mother, being American, was just like, there's no way I'm raising these kids um, here in Africa. You know, I'm going to bring them back to the United States. Uh, so she came back to the States as she struggled, you know, financially, because she went from having everything to having nothing. But, you know, this is where I really learned the concept of hard work and perseverance and doing everything you do with excellence and doing it right the first time. Because my mom just she put in the work every single day, you know, to, to, to provide for my brother and I. She worked multiple jobs, came home, took care of me and my brother. She homeschooled us on the weekend, along with sending us to public school because the public school system was so bad. And she because she was a teacher in the South Bronx, so she knew how bad it was. So she was just like, my kids will not be a statistic. So, you know, she would make us read books and articles and write reports on them. And if the books and if the art, if the reports weren't near perfect, she would make us pick another article and start all over again. So, again, she was trying to instill in us the concept of whatever you do, you do it right the first time you do it with excellence. And uh, just through osmosis, you know, doing things right and, and hard work and perseverance just became second nature to me. But as time went on and, and, and not having a father uh, in my life, you know, I kind of fell into the street life, you know, trying to search for a father in the streets and started out stealing from my mother. And then that progressed to stealing from stores, lo local bodegas, and that progressed to, you know, stealing from jobs and that progressed to selling drugs and then that progressed to running high level scams. By the time I was 19, I had built this massive illegal enterprise and I was able to do it because I had my father's mind. You know, he was very strategic in the way he moved and he was always good at coming up with new ideas. So I had his giftings. I just kind of channeled the wrong way in, in the illegal uh, activities that I was carrying out. And then, you know, um, one day I got involved in a deal with a drug dealer that went bad. Um, it was a, it was it was like a huge wake up call for me. It kind of. You know, my mother, another thing my mother would instill in my brother and I was this concept of, of consequences for actions. And that is, you know, you know, whatever you do something wrong, there will be a consequence for that action. And she, you know, you know, spankings may not be as popular now as they were before, but my mom would spank my brother and I. So when I got in that situation with that drug dealer, that was kind of like my soft spanking. That was my, OK, this is bad. But if you don't stop, it could be worse. And so, um that's why I decided to get out of the street game after I kind of made the money back and got right with with the drug deal I was selling the phones and stuff to. In your early childhood, when your father died and you guys came back to the United States, you guys went to the Bronx, you know, help me understand, you went from riches to rags. 
right? Like you did the opposite of the American story, right? Many people come to the United States and they do rags to riches. And it's not to say that you're not rich now, but in many ways you had to, you had to go from the top of the mountain to the bottom of the mountain. And so did you know in the Bronx that you were growing up in poverty? Not until I was about eight years old. It didn't hit me until I was like eight. And uh, I remember it because I, I shared the story in my book, actually, but I started to see things. Like, I started to see things. Like, I would go to the rent office with my mom, and she would ask for extra time to pay the rent. And I'd be like, Mom, like, why are you asking for extra? And it was embarrassing. Like, I hated it. You know what I mean? And because uh, I was like, man, I don't want my friends to see my mom asking for another week to pay the bills. And then I began, you know, to, my mom would give me and my brother a bar of ivory soap. And tell us, hey, you know, I can't afford detergent. You know, wash your underwear and socks in the sink, and then hang them up on the top of the uh, on the um, on the shower on the shower pole. You know, and so like, and it was uh, other things. And so as I began to see these other things, that's when I really began to realize, all right, like, you know, we don't we don't have it all. We're not, <laughs> you know, what I mean, like we we we're struggling. You know, and that's what led you down this path of like petty crime to then bigger things like selling drugs, selling cell phones. And that's what led this drug dealer. I read your story. This is what led this drug dealer to come to your house and essentially threaten your life and threaten the life of your mother too, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and that's, that's when it all, you know, when I was eight, that's when I was just like, you know what? I'm not going to be a poor kid. I don't care what I do, what I got to do. I'm going to make money, you know, even if it was stealing a little money from my mother for encouragement for myself, you know, or to, to buy something, buy, you know, a bunch of bag of chips for my friends so that they would affirm me and be like, oh, Remy's a man, he has money. Like, I would do stuff like that, you know, and it, and, and then it obviously continued to grow and continue to grow, especially as I got older. But it was all about, like, I don't want to be poor. And, you know, that's why, you know, I, I, I do work in the inner city with with kids and who come from the same background I, come, I came from. And, uh, you know, I don't, agree with what they do, but I can understand why they do what they do because I used to be there. You know what I mean? I understand their mindset. And so I feel like I connect with them more, but yeah, it was just all about getting money and surviving for me. Now that's really interesting, Remy. You know, we'll get to this idea of like how service is part of who you are now, but I'm really curious to know, like in the context of growing up in the Bronx and then this sort of, these moments of realization happening to you, did you realize that you were becoming this life of crime was becoming more intense as it was, or was it like a gradual thing? I would say it was a gradual thing. It was a gradual thing. Like it started out with little money, a little bit more money. And when I was doing my sneaker hustle, like more money and sneakers, then it grew in drug money, which was good money. And then the phone money, which was crazy, more money than I had ever seen in my entire life at that time. Now, help us understand, what, what years was this in the Bronx? I stopped December 2001 is when that drug dealer came to my house. It was Christmas of 2001. So from 2001 going back to 91 and 2001. So 2001's a really seminal year for the United States and for your journey because that's when 9-11 happened. And so the story of you deciding to change your life and going and wanting to join the, the Navy SEALs happened because a recruiter played a major role in your life. Can you talk about her for a second? Yeah, yeah, Tiana. Tiana Reyes, you know, she was from the Bronx. She was Puerto Rican. And she knew that a lot of a lot of other recruiters wouldn't give a kid like me and other kids who look like me a chance with the background that 
that we have. And when I say background, I mean, you know, with the legal activity that we, are, we, we had been indulged in. Because of that, she became like a Robin Hood. Like her deal was like, I'm a fine. And like she died years later, a few years after she snuck me into the Navy. But I remember I met her brother and her brother told me, yeah, that's what she did. Like she did the same thing for me. I had Mr. Meters and she was she wasn't even a recruiter at this point. She flew back to New York and took me to one of her friends who was a recruiter and was just like, put this fool in the Air Force. And he got in the Air Force. And then when she was a recruiter, she would go around to where she grew up with and say, listen, I see where your lives are going. Get off the streets. Come with me. Go in the Navy. You get a job. You get benefits. You learn where to go. You're not going to get anything here. And she would do that for people. And so she was a blessing, man. She was like an angel, man. And, uh, and that's why when she saw me, it was just like, okay, this is, this is another person that I need to help, you know? And I wasn't expecting that, but I feel like God led me right to her. And I say this because I get messages all the time on social media. Man, Remy, like, I'm in this situation with the law. Like, I made a mistake when I was 16 or 15. Somebody, cop found me with weed or found a weed on me or whatever. And no recruiter won't take me. I can't join the military. Like, how did you do it? How did, and I, and I tell them, I say, listen, guys, like, I just met the right recruiter that was willing to take a risk. It's not something I did. I couldn't lie my way. I, I had a record. Like, it was clear that I had a record. And what she did, Remy, was really crazy, right? Like, she actually went and pleaded with the judges in, what, two different states about your criminal case? She did it in such a way where there was a call to action because 9-11 just happened, and the United States was at war, right, with al-Qaeda. And so, Everybody was being recruited, right? So instead of people leaving college and going to Wall Street, everybody was joining the military, the State Department, the CIA. So the timing in many ways was really perfect for you, right? Yeah, it was perfect. And I was, and listen, man, I was not a patriotic person at all. You know my story. I didn't even join because it's like, I want to be a SEAL. Like I joined because I needed to get out of New York. That was the main reason why I left because it was like, there's nothing left for me here. You know what I mean? Like, what am I going to do? Am I going to continue to go out into the streets? Am I going to like, what am I going to do to survive? So it wasn't a, it wasn't a patriotic decision for me. It didn't really become patriotic for me and like for America type thing until I started going overseas. Just started seeing people who, and not even Americans, like local people who were being slaughtered and tortured and killed by their own people. And kill because one group is Shiite, another group is Sunni. So I would sit in rooms with people because my job was to help gather intelligence that would be vetted because I couldn't just have a meeting with three people and then be like, hey, these three guys said this. Like It had to be vetted in multiple different ways to make sure it was right. And based off of that information, we would go on missions. So I was the guy collecting and vetting this information. And when I would read through this and meet with people and see stuff happen and see videotapes and recordings of like a suicide bomber just going into a mosque and killing everybody because they are different. I was just like, man, like I'm blessed to be in America. You know, that kind of changed my perspective. You know, I think I think I think what's really wonderful about that that perspective, Remy, is the fact that you know you don't realize how good you have it until you're away from the thing that you have, 
right? And that can be true for anything, right? Like family, friends, your loved ones, your wife, people that you spend time away from or a place that gives you a feeling of safety and home and rule of law in the context of the United States. The moment you step away from it, people are killing each other and they're slaughtering each other. There's no repercussions for those actions. You come back to the United States and you think to yourself, thank God we have a legal system. Yeah, exactly. It's not perfect. It's not a perfect legal system. It needs a lot of work. And it, like, and that's something I try to tell people all the time. Like, America's not perfect. Like, that's, I'm not opposing it because it's not at all. There's a lot of issues. Um, but I'd rather be here than a lot of other places. Like, I, was in, I went back to Nigeria years ago and just to see how nothing has changed. Like, see how as soon as I get off the airport, customs people are bribing me saying, we're not going to let you go unless you give me money. I'm just like, What? You know, all this, when I see all that stuff, I'm just like, man, like, I'm glad to be in America, man. No, I, I completely empathize. I, um, you know, I think another really crazy thing about your story is the way in which you essentially got into the SEALs. It didn't happen initially. So can you talk about how that process was for you and like what you did from a mental toughness perspective that made you continue down this path until you eventually became a Navy SEAL through BUDS training and the Marines and all that stuff. Help us understand like how you did that. Well, I mean, how it started out for me, I got to my first command, which was Naval Hospital Camp Pendleton. And then I just, I started out just running. I didn't have a car, so I would run to the pool, try to swim, run back home. And then the next day was, I would go to the gym by myself, try and figure out workouts. And then, you know, I bought an ASVAB for Dummies book and I began to study the book. And then, you know, I began to learn, okay, I need to swim more than once, twice a week. So then I started going three times a week, four times a week and running to the pool, swimming more. I began to learn, you know what, I need to watch videos on how to work out because I don't know how to work out. So I'll watch videos like SEAL training, videos of guys in SEAL training, see how they worked out and then craft my workouts around that. I began to learn gradually, okay, I'm not going to be able to read this entire ASVAB book and consume all this information. How about I just take the test in the back of the book? And so that's what I did. So, you know, I just gradually adapted to the situation and adapted to what I needed to do in order to grow. And I kept the chart. I had this log book too. So I had a log book where I literally documented, okay, today my max pushups was a hundred pushups or today my max pull up, not not a hundred, like today my max pushups was 20 pushups. Today my max sit-ups was 20 sit-ups, like straight. Today my, and so every week I was like, my goal was like, I need to at least get two or three better. You know, like if I'm doing 22 push-ups today, then I need to be doing 23 push-ups by the end of the week, right? And so I was always, I kept the chart so that I was always growing. I was always seeing how I was progressing in the test. Setting those incremental goals really helped. It motivated me because I, when I would meet those incremental goals, then I would get the confidence to keep striving towards the next goals. And then ultimately, the ultimate goal was get accepted in the SEAL training. So after a year of checking into my first command, I was checking out and I went to SEAL training. Like, not swimming, not being physically fit, and not having the academic scores. January 2003, January 2004, I was in SEAL training, <laughs> literally. And then uh, I went to SEAL training, and uh, there's so much to the story, but I ended up like making it more than halfway through. I made it through first phase, made it through hell week, get to die phase. I get dropped in die phase, and then I get sent back to Camp Pendleton for a year and a half. And the day I got dropped, I literally just started training. Like I got dropped because of swims. Um, I didn't realize that I needed to know how to swim with fins. 
and I needed to know how to swim long distances in the ocean with, with fins. And so that's what ultimately I kept getting rolled back. You know, I got rolled back like three times the first time I was in Bards and finally they just said, hey man, like you're crushing everything else. Like you have what it takes to, to be a seal, but you're missing this one element, which is the water, like long distance swims in the water. And so I got kicked out. And as soon as I got kicked out, I was in the water the next day with my fins on in the pool swimming. <laughs> and uh, a year and a half later, I went back and I breezed through seal training and uh, made it through. That's amazing, man. Congratulations. Yeah, that's, that story is really, really, really inspirational. So, so what did you learn about yourself in that process, right? I mean, you had an ideal, you had a goal, and then every single day you thought to yourself, man, I have to improve incrementally. Is it safe to say in that process you became stronger and stronger and stronger and became more confident and confident and confident? Like, did you feel that in yourself? No, absolutely. I mean, because when you set a goal and you meet that goal, it does something to your confidence. So you got into the Navy SEALs, you went through BUDS training, you went through Hell Week, you became a Navy SEAL, you got your Trident. So you did three deployments and then you came back to the United States, finished your service after 16 years, and then you got into Hollywood through Michael Bay. Help us understand how that happened. Yeah, I was uh, I was in... Um I was actually in grad school at the time, finishing up my master's in, in, in organizational strategy and um, not trying to get in the film industry, not even thinking about the film industry. I, like It was the last thing on my mind. This woman calls me. She says, hey, base, looking for somebody with your background to work on this project. I asked her, what is it? She said, it's Transformers. I said, sure. And then the next day I was on set uh, in California and uh, working, just working it. Uh, with Michael Bay and Josh Duhamel shooting this, we up in the desert and uh, uh, not too far east of LA. And then um, that one day, like two weeks later, she called me back and said, "Bay wants you for three weeks in Michigan to film." I was like, "Cool." Went to Michigan for three weeks. After the third week, I got approached, and they was like, "Bay wants to keep you on for the rest of the film." So I stayed on the rest of the film till we wrapped in early December. And then, like that's that was the film that kind of opened the doors for me in the film and TV industry. And then I just started gradually, kind of like everything else, man, I, in, in my past, I just started gradually growing into these other roles. You know, I started getting hired as like a consultant on projects. I started acting in other projects and then I got hip to the game after I wrote my book. And I was just like, man, like the money and the control is not in being in front of the camera. It's in creating and producing. And I was just like, that's where, you know, I'm a businessman. And, and that's where I see myself thriving. And so I started like writing films and I started like trying to figure out ways to produce and all of these things just gradually grow into it. And I had a lot of setbacks and I had a lot of no's, like so many no's. And I love what you said about that. You know, what's interesting about the world is like the moment you realize the power of creativity, especially of creating something and then putting it out in the world and seeing what the world does with it. All of a sudden, man, that is a powerful transformative experience, isn't it, Remy? Yeah, no, 100%, 100%, especially when you see people react to it. I think my book really opened my eyes to that. I mean, I get messages every day. And uh, so being a, being a person that was creating that story in darkness and now to see it in seclusion and now to see it go from this office to the world, it's a blessing, man. It really is. It's a swine. Now, what's really great about what you're doing now, Remy, could you tell us about how the Navy SEALs and that sense of service has impacted your life now and serving others? What do you do now to serve others? 
Yeah, you know, I do a few things to serve others. You know, one is, uh, you know, I work in a nonprofit space with a company, with an organization uh, out here called uh, City Hope. And so it's an organization that mentors at-risk inner-city kids. And then also at the same time, it, uh, it deals with domestic violence victims and people caught in human trafficking. So I kind of partner with them from time to time. I also partner with another organization called OUR, Operation Underground Railroad, and uh, they help rescue kids trapped in sex slavery or organ harvesting or horrible stuff. And then, you know, I was actually on the phone today, you know, talking to this producer of the documentary that's documentaries about poverty and how to kind of break poverty in America. So kind of working on that. And then, you know, we did this swim across the Hudson last year in August to raise money for homeless veterans. We raised 200000 We're doing it again this August. So, I mean... Anytime people hit me up and they're like, hey, I got something. Can you participate or can you come to this school or can you talk to these kids or whatever? I typically, if my schedule is open, I raise my hand. And, and I think a lot of that comes from, you know, Tiana Reyes, you know, her, you know, raising her hand and saying, all right, like, I don't have to do this, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give my time and resources and energy to help you. So, you know, I think that it's, it's I have an obligation. Yeah. You know, what I really like about what you're saying is, People that say that they're self-made is an actual lie. Nobody's self-made, right? Like people, people come across our lives and they come across our path and they help us in ways that we, in retrospect, realize they're the reason why we have become successful. They are the reason why I came out of the darkness and I'm now in the light. And so, you know, it's really wonderful to hear that you're, you're, you're giving back now in more ways than one. And so what, what I want to do is I want to be really respectful of your time, Remy. I'd like to ask my guests one final question. I'd like to ask you, Remy, what is your message for the world? Well, I would say right now is there is a tomorrow. And when I say tomorrow, I mean like weeks from now, days from now, months from now, you know, there is a tomorrow, like this thing will end we will have an opportunity to come out of this. No, that's great. I, I, Remy, I really love the energy that you have. And uh, I think your story is very much a representation of what people can do, even against all odds. And so, Remy, I just want to thank you for your time, man. Thank you for sharing your inspirational story. And thank you for the work that you do, man. Uh, thank you, brother. I appreciate you. Thank you for what you're doing. And thank you for having me on your show, brother. Thank you for joining us on the Stories of Transformation podcast. This podcast is produced by Dana Drahos. Audio engineering by Joe Genjemi. Marketing by Catherine Ahn. Artwork by Mashida Hadi. And theme music by Kais Esor. If you love Stories of Transformation, you can help more people find us by leaving a review and sharing the episodes far and wide. We're grateful for all your support. And on behalf of the Stories of Transformation team, I'd like to say... Thank you. Okay, see you next time.